Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a food patriot to the natural world, and a person who knows democracy is possible. But it often takes a lot of work, and some days it can feel like too much work. So I got an email this week from uh, the USDA, the United States Department of Agriculture, and it, it this is his title. B standard, final, final guidance now available. So wondering what B foods might be? Well, B foods is actually a renaming of uh, GMO. And so listeners of Food Freedom Radio may recall the long battles to label GMOs. Um, and after ne- several years and several efforts, um, the voters of Vermont passed a GMO labeling bill. And companies like Campbell's began labeling GMOs. Then Congress stepped in. And with the help of Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar, and by the way, I still like Amy. (laughs) I I do like Amy. But with her help and with other help, um, they're passed something called the Dark Act. Um, And because of that act, um, we now, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm sad that we don't have GMO labeling in the United States. These new... B standards, well, kind of the name sums it up, doesn't it? No GMOs, it's just bee food. <laughs> That's not what voters um, wanted. And so my, my guest today is Ken Rose, Rosenborough. He's the editor, and he's been called the nation's reporters on all issues surrounding genetically modified foods by Acres USA Magazine. He's written extensively about GMO foods and non-GMO trends since 1999. He's also the editor of the Non-GMO Sourcebook and the Organic and Non-GMO Report. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Thank you, Lauren. Happy to be here. Yeah. Now, are you going to um, rename the Non-GMO Report to the Non-B Report? Um, no, no, I think it's because uh, people are much more familiar with GMO. Um, the USDA introduced this bioengineered BE term, kind of threw this into the mix, and it's only going to confuse consumers more about this whole issue. Okay, well, I mean, it's just bee food. Okay, so let's take, let's take a background. Okay, so I think most of our listeners, what are GMOs? What do we mean when we say genetically modified organisms? Yeah, genetically modified organisms um, means when uh, scientists take DNA uh, from different places like bacteria or viruses or other plants, insert them into the DNA of food plants such as corn or soybeans, um, canola and other and other plants, um, inserting the DNA to uh, create some trait. Um, it, for example, they've genetically engineered soybeans to resist resist sprays of Roundup herbicide. And in fact, 80% of the genetically modified crops that are grown in the world are these um, herbicide-resistant soybeans. So farmers can spray their fields with Roundup, their fields of soybeans with Roundup, and the Roundup won't won't kill the plants, won't kill the genetically engineered plants. It'll just kill the weeds. So these are the the primary um, genetically modified crops are the herbicide-resistant Roundup-ready, they call them, soybeans and corn. And there's also insect-resistant crops. These are genetically engineered to kill certain insects such as corn rootworm um, and other um, other insects. It essentially makes the corn plant 
a pesticide. The entire plant is a pesticide. And now, when when um, when this technology first came out, wasn't the promise that we would never have to deal with weeds again? Um, and is that's what is, has, has some of those promises come true? Some of the things that they've talked about years ago. Well, yeah, there have been a lot of promises. Yeah, we're going to eliminate weeds. We're going to feed the world. Um, create more nutritious foods. And no, none of these promises have come to pass. Um, with the weeds, uh, they're they're using. Uh, farmers using huge amounts of Roundup herbicide, uh, glyphosate, which is the main ingredient in Roundup, and 300 million pounds uh, per year are used. And weeds have developed resistance. Um, Nature adapts. Um, So weeds have developed resistance to Roundup. So the biotechnology company's solution to that is to introduce another genetically engineered plant that resists a different herbicide, which is uh, called dicamba. And dicamba-resistant genetically engineered soybeans have been introduced, and the technology has been a disaster because dicamba, it it volatizes, it turns from a liquid to a gas and can spread to other fields and kill kill neighboring crops, uh, other farmers' crops, or um, in some cases, orchards or people's gardens. Uh, so this dicamba technology, as Bayer, uh, which purchased Monsanto, calls it, um, ha- has been a disaster. And in fact, the EP, uh, the, a, a federal court, a federal judge, just overturned the, the approval of this dicamba herbicide um, because it has been such a disaster. Yeah, tell us more about that because this is kind of a newer story. That So so what did that judge rule and, and how how is that impacting? Well, yeah, it's interesting. The judge overturned the approval of, of the dicamba technology, the dicamba herbicide um, along with the dicamba-resistant soybeans um, because it, it has been so problematic. There have been millions of acres of of crops, um, gardens, ornamental trees have been damaged by by this herbicide, and uh, because it drifts, I mentioned it volatizes and it drifts and can travel for miles and kill other plants. And this pro, it even this drift problem even led one farmer to actually kill another farmer uh, over a, dr- a dicamba drift uh, dispute. Wow. So, um, so the the judge in this federal court overturned the approval of this dicamba herbicide, and unfortunately, the EPA um, is kind of thumbing its nose at this ruling, and it's allowing farmers to continue using dicamba until the end of, of until the end of this month, and um, some seventeen. Uh, state departments of agriculture are continuing, have said that they're going to continue allowing farmers to use dicamba. Um, so they're basically breaking the law. And even the, uh, the USDA Agriculture Secretary, Sonny Perdue, has encouraged the EPA to find all 
any flexibilities, as he called it, to allow the continued use of dicamba. So the government and the state government departments of ag are basically breaking the law by allowing this herbicide to be, continue to be used. You know, in a society, we have some called procedures and rules of law, and we're at a time when everything is so confusing because uh, they should be following the law, but it's it, it's such a confusing time. I just want to back up a little bit and say something that's on your website, that the entire genetic modification theories are based on obsolete scientific theory? Yeah, yeah. Um, it was um, a theory of that one um, one gene, you insert one gene, and it'll create the effect that you want, that it won't um, affect the other genes around it. But the DNA is a complex molecule, and research has found that when you introduce a gene into a complex system like a DNA, that it can create unintended consequences. And, and that is what can happen. It can create um, effects like new, new food allergens or toxins. And so it's a very, um, as one scientist put it, um, the whole gene insertion process that's done in genetic engineering is a shot in the dark because they don't know when they insert genes, they don't know where they're going to end up and what the effects are they're going to have. Um, as one scientist that I interviewed at the University of Michigan, John Vandermeer, said, genetic engineering is based on dramatically incomplete knowledge of the genome. <laughs> well, life is pretty complex, isn't it? We kind of always want to make yeah. things really simple, like they all fit in boxes. It's almost the, the classic story of, uh, I forget the fancy name for it, but the person who cut off his legs in order to fit into the box, the permissivist bed. Um, um, but, it, but it's almost like we, we still approach life uh, without honoring its complexities. Yeah, exactly. And, that's, and the genetic engineering is a classic case of that that the technology is a very powerful technology because they're manipulating the DNA, you know, the fundamental molecule of life, and, um, and, and can create um, un lots of unintended consequences. And so, I, yeah, oh, it saying, needs to be better regulated, and the USDA just recently loosened the regulations even more. We're going to take a break in a little bit, and when we come back, we want to cover a little bit what happened with the Monsanto trial. I mean, three jurors have looked at this, and they've awarded billions of dollars. Um, Mexico, uh, good news is Mexico just came out, and they're now banning glyphosate in, in Mexico. Um, so we there's, there's it seems like widespread um, consensus that these are dangerous, and yet we keep on and keep on, keep on using them. Um, and, and not only that, but um, what... Another thing that really alarms me is how this is going into uh, trees and is going into uh, the salmon, you know, making the salmon grow twice as fast in half the time because it works in the marketplace. And, you know, humans, humans are an animal that we once used gallons of mercury to get gold out. <sighs> it's time to, time to wake up and create a different system and try to be kinder and saner. And when we come back, we're going to be talking more about GMOs or how someone would call it um, BE, as in bioengineering. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950. 
Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, where we plan to nourish the seeds of change. With us is Ken Rosenberg. He's the editor of the Non-GMO Sourcebook and the Organic and Non-GMO Report. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. Thank you. Thanks. Good to be here. Yeah, let's talk about um, Monsanto and glyphosate and all that's been going on in, in that area. Yeah, well, um, as I, I mentioned earlier, glyphosate, which is the main ingredient in Roundup herbicide, is by far the most widely used pesticide in the United States. Um, 300 million pounds used per year. And, um, but there have been growing concerns because it's used so much. It's being, it's being found in a lot of food products now. Um, some different NGOs have tested foods and found pretty um, alarming levels of glyphosate in a lot of oat products or wheat products, and, um, and, and it's been found in mother's breast milk. So because it's so um, widespread in the environment, it's ending up in a lot of things. So there are increasing concerns, and um, some p- people who have used glyphosate, particularly uh, groundskeepers, um, people working landscaping use a lot of glyphosate, um, a significant number of people of these people have gotten cancer, particularly uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So, um, so some of these people have sued Monsanto, uh, which is now which is was purchased by Bayer. Uh, yeah, it was kind of funny ago. too. Like we got purchased by Bayer right before all these kids, um, cases came up, which. I mean, I don't want to be conspiracy thinking, but it's just it's it, that also seems sad in some ways that uh, that the people who are making the money off of it they took their money, sold their company, and um, but Bear lost a lot of money um, yeah, because of I this. Mean, yeah, the, yeah, the, the number of lawsuits has been thousands. I think one, I saw one estimate. So There's over a hundred thousand lawsuits against Bear over. The link between glyphosate and uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and the first suit um, went to trial a couple of years ago. A, a groundskeeper in San Francisco, Dwayne Johnson, mm-hmm. and um, the jury ruled in in his favor and awarded him, um, I believe it was two hundred and eighty-nine million dollars. And um, they found that one of the things they found that um, that Monsanto basically um, was hiding the negative effects of the herbicide, that they were um, kind of manipulating studies that had been done about glyphosate. Um, so the, the jury found that, that Monsanto was doing a lot of um, not-so-good things, so they awarded this, this huge judgment, and a lot of that, a huge amount of that role, uh, that judgment was for punitive damages um, that Monsanto uh, was responsible for. So um, that one, there was another one. There were three that yeah. um, three lawsuits that the plaintiffs all won, and one of them was a billion-dollar We judgment. actually had that, uh, Brett Weisner, the lead attorney on Food Freedom Radio, the same week that that ruling broke, and 
And so, and you know, they put um, uh, the, the law firm. Um, I'm not related, but it has the same name of Headland. But um, they uh, they put out all their documents on the public, so public can read all those court dom- documents and see yeah. what that jury saw. And so, you know, the jury of our peers look at this stuff and say, "Yep, that's that's not nice." And yet, and yet, and this is what we were talking about on on some other medium. And yet, even though we know this glyphosate is so dangerous to our health, we're still using it. And despite yeah. all this lawsuits it's still out there yeah yeah i know and um because of these lawsuits um bear um is seeing that they, they've lost three lawsuits over this and if these keep mounting they're they're in big trouble and they've lost they've already lost 40 percent of their stock price their stock has gone down by 40 percent because of these um and I, lawsuits. Does that even include how much they paid for Monsanto? <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, they paid sixty-three billion dollars for Monsanto, and um, so yeah, so the lawsuits are mounting. So they've decided to uh, negotiate a settlement with all the plaintiffs, and just recently they came to a an agreement to pay ten point nine billion dollars. To these plaintiffs um, who are suing them over their cancer link um, from using Roundup. So, and yet, all these billions of dollars in fines, but you, you walk into a lot of stores, you'll see Roundup there. And uh, off, off here, we were talking, it's almost like tobacco. I mean, people just keep on smoking the cigarettes, even though you know all these problems exist. People still make money, but they pay the lawsuits. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's you, um, you point out a, a a major problem is that this product, there are no safety warnings on this product, on Roundup. You go into a, a hardware store and buy Roundup and you'll look at the label, there are no, warning, there are no warnings about it. And, um, and that's, that, it needs a warning label. In fact, in California, uh, the state of California was going to put a warning label about, on, require a warning label on Roundup because of the the, the cancer concerns, but a judge ruled that they can't do that. So this product will continue to be sold. People will use it who aren't aware of of the problem, the, the link to cancer, and more people will get cancer. And that's and and again, uh, Mexico's product. environment ministry announced that glyphosate-based herbs will be phased out of the country by 2024 to protect human health and the environment. The other thing is, uh, butterflies don't get a chance to vote. And bees don't get a chance to vote. So what has been the impact on glyphosate, on, on butterflies and other uh, life forms? Yeah, well, um, glyphosate, you know, it's a weed killer. So it's, it's killed um, uh, the main source of food and um, milkweed. Um, butterflies require, rely on milkweed uh, plants for food and habitat. Um, um, Butter, um, monarch caterpillars, and uh, glyphosate has wiped out milkweed, and as a result, um, the numbers of of monarch butterflies, the po- monarch populations, have plummeted because of that. And it- as far as bees go, I've read that glyphosate has an effect on bees that it disorients them when they leave their hives and. Um, they're not able to return to their hives 
because the uh, the herbicide um, disorients them. So there's so many negative impacts that are being discovered um, with this herbicide. Negative impacts on soil health as well. So um, it's it's bad for human health and the environment. And yet more than 70% of processed foods found in retail stores and restaurants contain ingredients derived from genetic engineering. In uh, corn, soybeans, canola, and cotton, and uh, half of the sugar used in food products comes from genetically modified sugar beets. <sighs> so, Ken, we're going to take a break, and we're going to come back. We're going to talk more about your work and what we can do, how we can avoid genetic modifications, even if they call it bee food, B-E as in for bioengineering food, which is what the government has changed our GMO labeling to bee labeling. <laughs> well, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950. It's plain to see the love lights go now in your So welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, where we plan to nurse the seeds of change. I'm Laura Hedlund, and with us is uh, Ken Rosenberg. He's the editor of the Non-GMO Report, um, and he has been called the nation's reporters on all issues surrounding genetically modified foods by Acres USA magazine. Uh, welcome back uh, to Food Freedom Radio, Ken. Um, so tell us a little bit about your background and how you got interested in this. Well, my background is in journalism. Um, I've been uh writing professionally for, for the past 30 years, basically. And about 20 years ago, I um, I was hired on a contract basis by a um, laboratory that tests foods for genetically engineered ingredients um, to write articles for uh, trade magazines for them. So that's how I got involved with the whole genetically modified food issue, uh, working for them. And then later on, I um, I saw there was a market emerging for non-GMO foods, particularly in Europe and Japan, that people were concerned about concerned about uh, genetically engineered foods and their impact on health. So this non-GMO market emerge was emerging. So I decided to uh, create a publication. Uh, that focused on this non-GMO market. And that's what I've been doing for the past 20 years. 20 years. And people can go on your website. It is loaded with information. So how do people uh, find your um, um, website? Yeah, it's www.non-gmoreport.com. And I'm- we also, yeah, we also have a Facebook page with over 900,000 likes and um, a Twitter Twitter feed also non at non GMO report, and I'm, I'm looking at just so the, the the stories like one story is um, talks about the epigenetic effects that a new study finds glyphosate causes diseases across several generations. Yeah, yeah, that's what um, several scientists have found that um, that people exposed to um, different pesticides um, that their offspring. Uh, it's interesting, and in it, it it changes the DNA um, such that um, in one gener in the first generation there there aren't many effects seen from the um, the pesticides, but in later generations more negative uh, health effects start to show up, like cancer or obesity or um, 
mental disorders, high uh, anxiety or depression. So, um, which is very disturbing that the, the, the negative effects aren't seen in like the, in the first generation, but they are they increase in the second and third generation. Um, another negative impact of of these um, pesticides. Yeah, and so how do we avoid this? And again, I'm going to review. We were so close to having GMO labeling, um, and then uh, that dark act passed, and right now they just released the B <laughs> for bioengineering. Yeah. But so, um, how do we avoid them? How do we avoid GMOs? Well, yeah, the best way to avoid genetically engineered foods is to eat organic and also um, look for products that have the non-GMO project seal. The non-GMO project is a um, was an initiative that was started by organic um, owners of organic food companies back in 2007 that were concerned about the incursion of GMOs into organics. So they created a um, um, program, the non-GMO project, to verify that foods are are non-GMO. So it requires some testing and segregation and um, traceability. So buying certified organic foods is your best bet, and also looking for foods that have this non-GMO project verified seal are, are the best bet. And also growing your own foods. Yeah. During the during this COVID pandemic, there's been a big trend of people growing foods in their you know in their garden, yeah. gardens or raising backyard chickens. And and there's also some farmers. You had an article about that about um, you know we've talked about this a lot on Food Freedom Radio that you know we don't grow uh, vegetables <laughs> or not. I mean far, most of our veg most of the vegetables consumed in the United States comes from large farms in in, in California. But farmers around um, the Midwest could be growing the vegetables, and there, there seems to be some type of shift in, in the, the market towards more locally grown produce. Oh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, I know community-supported agriculture programs are really um, popular right now. Um, yeah, and later yeah. in the program we'll be talking with the Minneapolis Farmers Market about their Pay It Forward program as well. Um, so knowing my farmer, and yet, I mean, I'm still disappointed because I think it would so it would it would have been so nice to just have it labeled um, genetic um, product contains uh, genetically modified ingredients, and and we would have had that had the Congress not passed the so-called Dark Act. So what do we right. have now in the place of it? Can, what are these um, bioengineered BE requirements what can we start looking for that on the packaging and just make that shift in our own mind oh if i see be it actually means gmo yeah exactly yeah in fact there are some products uh, most notably the impossible burger mm-hmm. has a be bioengineered label on it oh i didn't notice um, that yeah because the impossible burger is uh, is made using genetic engineering it actually uses soy uh, soy protein from Roundup Ready GMO soybeans. So people are starting to go to plant-based because they know that's better for the climate. And then instead of the the plant-based proteins, which um, we could be making that in a way that does honor soil, water, and each other, that is possible. Instead, it has the genetically um, genetic modifications on it. 
Yeah, and it's evidently the Impossible Burger is very popular. That and the Beyond Burger, yeah, which is actually non-GMO project verified. It's made with uh, pea protein. Cool. So, yeah, a lot of products, I, more products are going to have the BE label. It's, but the, it's a very weak, it's probably the weakest GMO labeling law in the world. Um, it allows up to 5% GMO, uh, GMOs in the product. Um, it does not require labeling of foods that contain highly processed ingredients like starches, like cornstarch or oils like soybean oil so it's um it's a very weak law so it it it's going to make certified organic and non-gmo project verified even more important um, you've been watching these issues for over two decades um and i mean what do you what do you see as the future or what do you, let me, I almost want to do two questions. What do you see as the future and what do you hope for the future? What I see for the future, I think organic is going to continue to grow. And another, um, another trend that is, that is really taking hold, gaining ground, so to speak, is regenerative agriculture mm-hmm. with its focus on soil health. Because as, you, as the Rodale Institute says, healthy soil, healthy plants, create healthy people. Mm-hmm. So, um, and we're seeing, I'm encouraged to see a lot of farmers, even conventional farmers, that are adopting um, soil health practices such as cover crops and diverse crop rotations um, and that are reducing their need for pesticides like Roundup. Um so this whole trend of regenerative agriculture is is a very positive trend. I, I can I see yeah, that continuing. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, we've had David Montgomery on, um, mm. and um, one of the things that he said is that you know, regenerative farmers are making more money than conventional farmers. And if you yeah. as uh, if the market can respond in that way, so that those who feed the soil. Um, can make more money doing what's right for the environment and honoring water and people and each other. They can generate more resources, financial as well as well-being. Um, that helps shift the system. Exactly. Yeah. And I, I've interviewed some farmers. I interviewed a farmer in Indiana who has adopted these practices, and um, he's making more money, and he's he's reduced his need for um, pesticides dramatically. He doesn't use any insecticides or any fungicides. Um, and he's actually, and he's also transitioning half of his land to organic. So th- these farmers that, that are adopting these regenerative agriculture practices are essentially moving toward organic production. And some of them are, are converting because they realize, hey, I'm, I'm I'm going that way anyway. I might as well just transition to organic. I'd love so to. So that's a very encouraging trend. That really is. And uh, the World Food Prize is going to uh, Dr. Uh, I'm hoping I'm saying his name, Dr. Raul. Rattan Law. Rattan yeah. Law, yes. Yeah. And isn't that yeah. an interesting trend? Yeah, he's. Um, Dr. Law is well known um, soil scientist. He's been working on um, healthy soil. You know, and soil health has been his main focus for many years. 
And it's really encouraging to see the World Food Prize honor him because in, in past years, the World Food Prize is, has, been, has gone to agribusiness people. Like there was a, an executive from Monsanto who got the award a few years ago. So for the World Food Prize to acknowledge the importance of soil health, that's a big, that's that's a big. big step forward. So last two minutes, what would you like to, um, what would you, again, would you like our listeners to know about um, organic and non-GMO foods? Well, um, like I said, it's the best, the best um, way to avoid GMOs and also to avoid pesticides. Uh, the main reason people eat organic is to avoid pesticides. So to, the best way to avoid glyphosate herbicide is to eat organic. Um, and fortunately, the organic movement continues to grow. I just saw a figure where uh, organic food sales have topped $50 billion dollars. And and I see uh, more and more farmers. I've interviewed uh, a, a company that helps farmers transition to organic. And there's a lot. There's quite a few farmers that are doing that. Even General Mills is encouraging. Um, they want to convert more more land to organic. Um, so these big companies are getting involved in wanting to transition land to organic. Um, some I know some people have some some doubts about big companies getting involved in organic that they'll um, want to co-opt organic, but so far um, organic has remained strong. And um, and there's also uh, regenerative organic now. There's a new certification that goes beyond just certified organic, regenerative organic that in that um, incorporates some of the soil health practices that I, that I mentioned earlier. So you'll be seeing, people will be seeing a regenerative organic seal on food products um, that, are, that is just starting. Um, Nature's Path has a, an oatmeal, I believe, that is regenerative, uh, certified yeah. regen- regenerative. Well, now organic. we have a trust economy together and trusting our food system. So um, I, I thank you so much, Ken, for joining us. Uh, uh, Ken, editor of the Non-GMO Sourcebook and the Organic and Non-GMO Report. Um, thank you for your time. When we come back, we're going to be talking about the Minneapolis Farmer's Market. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, where we plant and nourish the seeds of change. I'm Laura Headline, and now we're uh, talking with the uh, Minneapolis Farmers Market. Um, joining us via phone is uh, Sina Plagenkuhl. Um, welcome, welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Hey, Laura, how you doing? Uh, I'm doing fine. I mean, um, so tell us about how is the Minneapolis Farmers Market doing in this age of COVID? You know. Um, we're doing really well. It is the height of Minnesota-grown vegetable season. Um, so when you look around our market, it's just the best that it could possibly be. Um, it obviously looks a little different due to COVID. Um, so we have our vendors spaced out so that we can have our customers have enough room for social distancing. And everyone's wearing a mask. Our customers are, con- are encouraged to wear a mask. Um, but other than that, it is prime time for Minnesota-grown vegetables. <laughs> right. And you started a new thing called Pay It Forward. So how does Pay It Forward work? Yeah, you know, Minneapolis is going through a very challenging time right now. 
Um, and not just at our market with our farmers, but our community as a whole and a way for us to connect um, and be a part and help one another is, is, you know, doing what we do best, which is supplying our community with uh, produce, with, you know, beautiful Minnesota-grown produce. And so, you know, with the recent uprising in Minneapolis, we've just had this outpouring from our customers that they want to figure out how, to, how can we help, how can we help. And that's what started our Pay It Forward program. And so what our customers can do is basically go to any participating vendor and say, hey, um, I'd like to buy these carrots for myself and I'd like to buy an additional set of carrots and pay it forward. And what that vendor does is sets it aside and then we donate it to various organizations in Minnesota who are feeding the hungry um, with a healthy meal. Wonderful, because we need to feed all people. We need to have an ecosystem of farmers feeding all people. Exactly. You know, and um, climate change affects us all, right? And COVID can affect Mm -hmm. us all. And black lives affect us all, too, because when one life is diminished, all of our lives are diminished. That is exactly right. And so uh, Minneapolis Farmers Market for a long time has been home to uh, um, us coming together around food. Yeah, you know, it's it's a, also beyond giving back to the community and making sure that we can provide nutritious food for the community. It, this also allows our customers to come back and have those conversations again with our farmers and vendors and to talk more to each other, build those relationships. Um, you can very well go to regular grocery stores and get what you need and go, but the experience of coming to the market, connecting with your community and supporting one another is a far more beneficial, um, I don't know how to best say it, but it just really does something good to your heart when you're able to connect with one another again. Yeah, and it's the importance of supporting independent farms. I mean, we, mm-hmm. in, earlier in the show we were talking about GMOs and uh, you can just start hearing and learning about the industrial food system, and it, it doesn't warm your heart. It doesn't warm my heart. And maybe it warms someone's heart, <laughs> but it doesn't warm my heart. <laughs> the letter T came to my mind, but, you know. <laughs> but anyhow, um, uh, but, uh, so, but also it's a fun place to shop at the Minneapolis Farmer's Market. Yes, it is a lot of fun. I mean, with covid it's we're you know we're trying to tell everyone to make sure to you know practice safety and come one at a time um you know we're reiterating this message of safety and making sure that we can still um, come to the market and be safe but when you bring all this produce home and you're able to connect with your family and you know what a powerful statement it is to say that the food that you made this meal you were able to um Everything was here locally made. Uh, you were supporting, you know, farmers that are less than 100 miles away, and the money that you're spending goes right back into your community. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun, and you don't even know that sometimes you don't even know how much of an effect you're making, but you're still having fun. And so we're really happy that we can continue to support our community and keep the market open, but at the same time, you know, traffic is at an all-time low this year, um, but there could be some reasons why. We have a CSA program with some of our farmers, and a lot of people are utilizing 
different tools to get, you know, local produce back in their home during this interesting um, time that we're living through. Uh, but still, we still need our customers to come out, support, especially on the weekends. We have a full house of vendors um, with, you know, the most beautiful vegetables. You know, last week I got some green tomatoes. I was super excited about it. And the farmer was just so happy that I picked that out. She was like, I just picked this this morning. And it's and she was so happy that that's what I picked from her table. So I think most of our of listeners know where you're <laughs> located. But again, where are you located and where are you out? And what are your hours? You know, we are open daily, uh, 6 a.m. to 1 p.m. You'll find us in downtown Minneapolis at 312 Lindale Avenue North. Um, Monday through Friday, our customers can park right inside the market. Um, there are less vendors on the weekend, but you'll still get a huge variety of um, products and produce. Uh, the weekends um, park all around the market. There's a huge free parking lot underneath the bridge. Uh, but 312 um, Lindell Avenue North is the address. And what are those exits um, via freeway again? That's So it is the Lindell um, exit. Uh, there's a lots of different ways to get to the market. I would say the best thing to probably do from where you're coming from is to Google Maps it. <laughs> yeah, and look for the big red barn. Look for the big red barn. Um, and with the heat, has there been any heat problems? It's been seems really hot this year. Has that made it a you little know, tougher? It is really hot, but, you know, we're open 6 a.m. to 1. Oh. So if you come really, really early, it feels really comfortable. The air is light, and it just, it's just a very calming, beautiful experience when you come really early in the morning. Um, but, yes, once we hit around 11 to 1, it definitely gets very, very hot. But um, we as Minnesotans should definitely just enjoy that. <laughs> we cool. Have and, again, a safe experience <laughs> and uh, for the freshest food possible but you're, exactly. you're doing a lot to keep it extra safe any other tips for shopping in these these times yeah you know come to the market first come to the market first um pick out what looks good and um, we have so many resources with minnesota grown to see what's in peak um in season right now like if you've ever tried a raspberry right in peak season it's just like candy it's so delicious <laughs> Um, and then go to your grocery store to get what you need from your pantry items that you can't get at the market. So stop um, with us first in the morning. Um, and if you can be flexible with your grocery list, you know, buy what looks good. That's what I always when people come to the market. By which reason, yeah, one of my favorite things to do is just to, if I get a lot of food, is to just throw the food in a big pot and then put a lot in the freezer. So in the in the winter, I can take out kind of pre-prepared, um, I call it soup starter, and just kind of make my meals. So finding ways to keep that wonderful fresh produce year-round. Um, I thank you so much, uh, Sina Plagenkuhl, um with the Minneapolis Farmer's Market, um, open daily, 6 to 1 o'clock. And I thank you for listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the voice of Minnesota. And next week, we're going to have two experts with um, the John Hopkins Center for Livable Future. We're going to be talking about uh, COVID and meat slaughterhouses and a national effort to end factory farming.